All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord to ask his guidance on our study of the word. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. It's a complete canon of scripture, all that we need in 66 books of the Bible, and that by studying your word, God the Holy Spirit then makes it clear to us, helps us to understand what it means, and he is the one who helps assimilate that truth into our soul, that we may have our thinking transformed not being conformed to this world, but transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. As such, we realize that we must take every thought captive captive for Christ, that we must intentionally focus day in and day out on learning your word, reflecting upon it and its significance in our lives, that God the Holy Spirit can then use this as he matures us. As we study today, Father, we come face to face with these important doctrines related to who we are in Christ, our position in him, what that means, its significance. And often we come across these phrases like the one we're studying today that are just so filled with background that we hardly ever fully comprehend the significance of them. So as we study today, help us to focus, to concentrate, and see the big picture that we can understand why you have said what you have said in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And as we have been studying we see that at the very center here of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul focuses on three things that God has done for us, that we're born physically dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not born good. We are born corrupt by Adam's original sin, and therefore a radical transformation must take place. God alone can do that for us. And that's the focus of verse 4. But God, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, has done three things for us. He has made us alive together with Christ, which we studied a few weeks ago. He raised us up together, and we studied that last time and saw all that is implied by that phrase. And then we come now to the third phrase, that he has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What in the world does that mean? What is the significance of that? That is why I begin this. This will take several weeks to go through this. Why I am beginning with this question, why did Christ need to ascend to heaven? 
because the ascension of Christ to heaven is directly connected to that which follows, which that he is welcomed into heaven and he takes his position where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That position is his position throughout this present church age. Why is that important? What is going on now that is different from anything that happened before the cross? What is the significance of this? Why is it important for you and for me to understand that we have this new position in Christ where we are seated with him? What does that what does that mean? This idea of being in Christ. We talk about our position in Christ. This is a rather abstract concept. Could you explain that to someone who didn't have a lot of background in Bible study or understanding the scripture? What it means that you are now in Christ, that you have a position in Christ. Can you uh, put that into your own words to help someone understand that. It's a rather abstract doctrine. Perhaps you could use the analogy of a family. As a member of a family, each of us has an identity. Your parents probably taught you some things about how you should behave because you are part of their family, at least if they were responsible uh, parents, that would have been part of their uh, parenting responsibility. Your position in the family may have something to do with your birth order. It might have something to do with a reputation of your family, perhaps uh, the kind of work that, or responsibilities that your parents had in church or in the community, something of that nature. And it might be that as as the fact that you are part of that family, uh, you gained a certain identity, whether you liked it or not. History and newspapers are often filled with gossip stories about the sons and daughters of celebrities or uh, royal, uh, the royals or political sons and daughters who fail to live up to the expectations or the reputation of the family into which they were born. Perhaps one of the most notorious things going on right now has to do with the alleged involvement of Prince Andrew, the son of Queen Elizabeth, with uh, his alleged involvement with the perverted sexual playground of the notorious Jeffrey Epstein. He didn't kill himself. <laughs> Prince Andrew the, is the third child and the second son of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. As such, he was originally second in line after his brother to ascend to the throne of England. But by now, because Charles married, had two sons, because they have had children, he is now the eighth in line. He is a position in a position where he has always lived in a glass house. People knew everything about him. There's a level of expectation for those who are uh, the royals in how they should conduct their lives. But if we're honest, we know that, they, that, that the royal families here and there throughout the history of England have failed to live up to their expectations many different times. 
But nevertheless, there's that position that they're born into. That's their family heritage. That is uh, provides a level of expectation and identity. That is that is their position. The fact that Prince Andrew has failed and now has uh, had to give up some of his responsibilities and who knows where all of that's going on sort of reminds us of the theme in the parable that the Lord told on the prodigal son. You have the uh, younger son who decides to take his inheritance from his father and he goes off and he squanders it. But when he comes to his senses, he returns home course, he squandered his inheritance, but his father welcomes him home because that's still his identity. He's still in the family. And that is important for us to understand. When we sin, when we're away from the Lord for a short or long period of time, God always welcomes us back. He forgives us. There may be consequences for our sin and disobedience, but God welcomes us and he forgives us, welcomes us back because of our position in the family. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we studied last time with that phrase that we are raised with him, that phrase pulls together many different passages in Scripture. It's a short phrase, but when we examine how it is used in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2, as we did last time, what that does is to emphasize the fact that at The moment we trusted in Christ as Savior, we were identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We were then given new life. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, because of our position in the human family, our position in Adam. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, excuse me, second, this should be 2 Corinthians 5.22. For as in Adam all die, no, excuse me, this is 1 Corinthians 15.22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we have a position that we're born into. We're born into Adam's family. And that position is one of alienation from God. It's one of spiritual death. It's one where we are identified as those who are walking according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, who, of course, uh, of course, is Satan. As such, we have no spiritual life. There must be a transformation, and only God can do that transformation, and that is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Now, this transformation isn't something God just zaps us with. It is the result of our response to the gospel in trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. As we go through this chapter, it ends with those well-known verses in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means by which we appropriate the gospel, Christ's death for ourselves. We have been saved through faith and not of works. It excludes all works. Why? Because other passages such as Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The foundation for God's work in our behalf is his character, 
His mercy, his grace, his love for us, we're told in verse uh, 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, he provides a perfect salvation, and it becomes ours when we trust in the promise. We trust in the truth that Christ died for our sins. And when that happens, these three things take place, that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. That's the first thing we talked about. That is the new birth regeneration where at the instant of trusting Christ, we are born again. That's when we are made a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And then also at that same instant, we're raised up Together, and we looked at that last time in terms of Romans chapter six, that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and by being raised together with him, it focuses on the fact that we have new life in him, and then we come to the third thing that is our focus beginning today is that he makes us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just to remind us of the flow of our passage that we're studying in Ephesians 2, the first three verses tells us what we were before we were saved, that we were spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God. And then God provides the solution on the basis of his love and mercy that we're we're regenerated, we are raised, and we are seated positionally in Christ. There's that term again. We are in this new family. And we have a new identity in Christ. That should change everything, not thinking of ourselves as we did before we were saved, but we are now royalty in the family of God. And the purpose, see, after we're saved, the purpose is that we are saved for good works. The good works aren't to get us saved. They should be the result of this new life that we have in Christ. As I pointed out last time, our forgiveness of sin, all of this is made possible because of what Christ did for us on the cross. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, summarizes the same thing that Paul is teaching in Ephesians 2. First of all, the problem, and even when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, and then the solution, he has made alive together uh, with him, And then the basis, because he has graciously forgiven us. And the word there is charizomai, which is a word that the root means grace, but it is used often to refer to forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of a debt on the basis of grace. It's a free gift. So I've translated this because he has graciously forgiven you all trespasses, past, present, future. Now, when did he do that? Did he do that because you did something? Did he do that because of participation in some ritual? Did he do that because you pleaded with him? No. In fact, he didn't do it in relation to any decision or action on our part today. Look at how it goes. What you have here in the Greek is a series of participles. Now, participles always, or not always, but in This type of participle modifies a verb, so you have to understand what it means. Now, most translations will translate it in as much of a rudimentary way as it can, 
but but it's up to the pastor to help interpret these participles and their their past tense participles, aorist tense participles, so they indicate action that has taken prior to the main to the main verbs. And the main verb is that he made us alive together. So that happened, but before that happened, we had been graciously forgiven all trespasses. Before you ever trusted in Christ, this is talking about the fact that you were forgiven graciously all trespasses. When did that happen? When he wiped out the handwriting of requirements or some translations, the certificate of debt. When did he wipe out that certificate of debt? It was uh, at the cross. So he goes on to say he had, we were forgiven when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, even when he took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. That's a historic event. He nailed it to the cross in A.D. 33. At that time, the sin penalty is paid for. Now, the problem is we're still spiritually dead, when we're born, and we don't have righteousness, and so that still has to be resolved. When we trust in Christ, the problem of spiritual death is solved by regeneration. The problem of our lack of righteousness is solved by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So because we have his righteousness, God justifies us. But the sin is paid for at the cross. So that sin really isn't the issue at your salvation. The issue is the cross. The issue is what Christ did for you. So all of this is part of the background that we have examined. And last time we looked at the first phrase in Ephesians 2.6, 2, that he raised us up together. It uses the same verb here in the Greek that talks about the resurrection of Christ. And I took you then to Romans 6, uh, 3 through 6, and I just want to hit the high points. That it's speaking of, uh, in Romans 6, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It is a picture, a physical, that water baptism is a physical picture of this spiritual reality. And what happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus Christ, as the one who performs the act, that's what John the Baptist said, there's one who comes after me, and he will baptize you by the Holy Spirit. So Christ is the one who performs the action. And he uses the Holy Spirit, because the grammar is parallel to the way John uses the water, to effect the identification with himself. So Christ does the baptism, we're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, and we're placed in the body of Christ. That baptism is an identification into death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, not literal water baptism, but through the Spirit's baptism at the instant we were saved, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the resurrection of Christ is related to new life. Our identification with Christ's resurrection speaks of the new life that we have in him. It begins with regeneration, but it means that we should live differently than we did before we were saved. That's Romans 6, 6. Because of this, we know that our old man, that's everything we were before we were saved, 
was crucified with him that the body of sin, that is our sin nature, might be in the future done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What this means is that tyrannical master, the sin nature, has his power broke, has its power broken at the instant of salvation, but it's still there. And too often we go back and we put ourselves back into a position of slavery to the sin nature when that power has been broken. We don't lose our salvation, but we live as if we weren't saved. And so Paul's conclusion is he who has died, that is every believer at the instant of salvation has died to to sin, but he who has died has been freed from sin. And then he goes on to say that we have to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. We have to consider ourselves to be dead to sin. A lot of times we just don't. We continue to sin just like nothing had happened. Foundation for this, again, is stated, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. We chart this out this way. In terms of eternal realities, this relates to our position. At the cross, when we trust in Christ, we are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and placed in Christ. This is our new family, our new identity, It involves being regenerated. We're adopted into God's royal family. We are a new creature, a new creation in Christ. We are freed from the tyranny of the sin nature. We have this new life, and we should live on the basis of it. We are sealed or branded as God's child, so that can never be changed. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. All of that is part of our our position in Christ. So when we come to Ephesians 2, 6, the phrase raised up together with him is telling us we need to recognize our new position and live in light of that. But it goes on. There's a third thing. And that third thing is he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this, we've touched on this before back in Ephesians uh, 1.20, uh, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and this is called the session. It's from the Latin word sessionum, which refers to being seated, and so theologically it's referred to the session of Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, this isn't just some abstract little doctrine that is fun for theologians to talk about. It is woven into so many passages in the Scripture, and the list of passages I have up here is not exhaustive, but we find it in at least these 14 passages. Acts 2, 33 to 34 is based on the fact that Christ has been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. We have, in fact, three passages in Acts. Acts is written by Luke, same author as the Gospel of Luke. Three passages that all connect to the uh, session of Christ, the seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we have Paul's writings. He talks about this in Romans 8.34. In Romans 8.34, this too is a passage that emphasizes the position of Christ in heaven and the relationship of that uh, to um, our 
present spiritual life. We see it in Ephesians 1.20. Then it's developed more in the passage we're in, in Ephesians 2.6. And then it will be explained and used even more when we get to Ephesians 4.8-11, where Christ had to ascend in order to give spiritual gifts to the church, gifts of leadership, so that the body of Christ could be matured. Christ had to ascend so that he could send the Holy Spirit. All of these things that we have as part of our church-age spiritual life are the result of the fact that Christ ascended to heaven and seated at, at the, sat at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Ephesians, uh, I mean, excuse me, and Colossians 3.1 as well emphasizes uh, Christ's position at the right hand of the Father and set, set, tells us that because of that, we are to set our minds on the things above, and this is because our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in Hebrews, we read five different references to Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father, and all of these relate to his present role as our high priest, that we are priests, believer priests. Every individual Christian is a believer priest under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and what he is presently doing uh, on our behalf as a high priest. So all of that is predicated on the session and the, on, on the ascension and on the accession uh, of Christ. And then one time in Peter, which emphasizes Christ's authority from the right hand of the Father over all of the creatures, all of the angels, all of the demons, all the human beings over all things, that, that what we have in heaven now is Christ in authority over everything. Now, Jesus, as the, our Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, in his deity, was always in authority over everything, right? There never was a time when the second person of the Trinity and all of his deity was not in authority over everything. So what's this describing? This is describing his humanity, that when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, he is there as the God-man. The title related to that is the title Son of Man, so the Son of Man has ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father telling us that in the command post of heaven, the one who is seated next to the Father who has authority over all things is a human being. He's fully God, but he is also fully human. As such, he can function as our high priest, our intercessor, our advocate. He is uh, fully human. He's been tested in all areas as we are, yet without sin. All of this is tied up in this little phrase, made us sit together in the heavenly places. Because not only is, is Christ as the God-man seated at the right hand of the Father, but we who are in Christ, in that family, that church-age family, are in that same position. We are at the right hand of the Father positionally. That is our legal position and identity as church-age believers. And to probe that is phenomenal. 
It, it, it should blow our minds just to think of what the implications of that are. And yet Paul just just uses this phrase. It tells us that, that the folks in Ephesus had been taught all about this, and all Paul has to do is use these phrases, and they would immediately, every time they heard each of these words or phrases, everything that I'm, that I'm teaching you is something that would come to their, come to their mind as part of that, that background. When we look at this teaching on the uh, ascension and session of Christ, it flows through Ephesians. We talked about this initially in Ephesians 1, 19, 20, and 21, where in that prayer of Paul's at the end of the first chapter, he said that we should know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, according to the working of his omnipotence, which he, that is God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And the significance of that is in verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So in the, <clears throat> in the order of this epistle, we're first introduced to this in Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. And then it's expanded in this chapter by telling us we're seated in him. And then it's going to be expanded again when we get into Ephesians chapter 4, talks about this is why Christ had to ascend. So what I want to do in the rest of the time we have today is begin to look just at the background of the ascension of Christ. Why did Jesus have to ascend? Why was that necessary? The, this doctrine, this biblical teaching, the ascension of Christ, is not disputed by the different theological or denominational traditions. Everyone believes, every Christian believes that Jesus physically, bodily ascended uh, to heaven. Uh, it is a crucial doctrine, though, for understanding everything that happens in this church age. It should shape our identity of who we are in Christ. And that's what we will see as we go forward. So as we look at the background to the ascension, uh, I'll remind you that it was not prophesied in the Old Testament. That's why we have the question, why did Jesus have to ascend? It's not prophesied in the Old Testament. What was prophesied in the Old Testament was simply that in the future, the Messiah would come. This would be a historical event which would as provide for the salvation of his people, and it would establish the Davidic covenant. There was no sense in the Old Testament that these would be separate events. They were viewed as one event. It is as if you are driving towards a mountain range. Let's say you're going to the Rocky Mountains, and in the distance you see a couple of mountain peaks, and it appears to you that from a distance that they're right next to one another. But as you get closer and closer, you realize that there's actually a valley of maybe several hundred miles between those mountain peaks. 
And so you're just seeing them without an understanding of that valley in between. That's how it was in the Old Testament at a distance. It looked like these two peaks, the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrated Christmas, and then his second coming were all at the same time. But what we learn when we look at Scripture is that there is a distinction, and what happened was that at the first coming, Jesus came to present the kingdom, and he was rejected, and the message was rejected, and he was crucified. And now we raise the question, what happened to God's plan when the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified? And what happens between those two mountain peaks of the first coming of Christ at his birth, which happened in approximately three or four BC, and the second coming, which has not yet taken place? Jesus came to present the kingdom. Obviously, he was teaching that there was some discipline on Israel, Matthew chapter. Uh, 12, because they rejected him, and his disciples were still confused and still expected the kingdom, even though he had been rejected, even though he had been crucified, and now he has been raised from the dead. And so they go out to the Mount of Olives one day, and they don't know that he's about to ascend to heaven, and they ask him this question. They say, therefore, Uh, When they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Several things we ought to note about this. First of all, it indicates that they have not yet grasped the point that the kingdom is postponed. Uh, Earlier, as we were observing the Lord's table, I talked about Matthew 26, 29, where Jesus said that I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until the, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It was very clear there there's a postponement of that kingdom, and they understand it's been postponed, but they're thinking in terms of days and not centuries. And so they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they know that The kingdom hasn't happened yet, and they understand that the kingdom is a geopolitical kingdom that is centered in Israel. It is not a spiritual kingdom in the heavens. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You know, they rejected me, so we're going to have a different kind of kingdom. We're going to change things, and it's going to be a kingdom in heaven, and it's not going to be here on the earth. That is the view of amillennialism. It's the view of... of, uh, in some ways, post-millennialism. It's the idea that this kingdom isn't what is stated and anticipated in the Old Testament. And so we have to ask this question, since God had promised a king, a kingdom, and the kingdom was now rejected uh, and the king was executed, what about the kingdom program? So we have to go back to some basics. First of all, the Jews expected a one-coming kingdom. They expected that when the Messiah came, he would establish a, a political kingdom. This was their expectation. And it wasn't wrong for this is what we, we have seen in our study of Matthew. 
That was the message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the message of Jesus at the beginning, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sent out his disciples only to the house of Israel, and their message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But something happened. The second point is that the Jews had a misconception. They wanted the crown before the cross. They wanted a glorious Messiah who would defeat and get rid of the Romans uh, before the suffering Messiah. In fact, they thought there might even be two Messiahs, but the first one would be the political Messiah. Biblically, the cross had to come before the crown, but they got it backwards. They wanted the crown before the cross, so they misinterpreted what Jesus was doing And as a result, they rejected him because they were looking for a glorious Messiah who would bring in the kingdom. That's what's going on at the end of John chapter 2. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. It's Passover. He does many miracles and signs. Many people believe in him. But then it says he didn't trust himself to them. He didn't trust himself to them because their agenda was to make him king, and he knew that he had to go to the cross before he would be the king. This is still clear right before the cross in John chapter 12, where 12 in verse 34, where it shows their confusion. There we read that the people answered him and said, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's what he had said earlier in John 3. He said, Who is this Son of Man? And that is the problem. They do not expect a suffering Messiah. So in 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, we're told by, by Peter that uh, of this basic issue that the prophets looked into this. They, they understood that there was the suffering of the Christ and the glories to follow. That was the correct order. In 1 Peter 1, 10, Peter says, As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, that is the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the rabbis in the intertestamental period got things backwards and they were looking for the glory and then the suffering. The sufferings are clearly described in Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 7. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So this is talking about the servant of the Lord, and he is being Uh, abused and beaten up, and he is being uh, whipped and flogged, and that is what is predicted. Second, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This this abuse described in verse 5 is related to the payment for uh, for sin, the payment for iniquity. He's oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So there are many other passages, like Psalm 22, that speak of the suffering 
of the Messiah. But then we had other predictions in the Old Testament that focused on the glories of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then, after these things, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, when you read Isaiah, these different prophecies are, are... you don't get a straight timeline, but it's clear from different places that that the the suffering of the Messiah had to come before his his glory, and we see this in the Gospels. All of the Gospels follow this pattern: the initial offer of the kingdom, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then there is the rejection of the king, and Jesus pronounces a judgment on that generation. It is an unforgivable sin, not that they can't be individually saved, but that the nation now has set its course on rejection of the Messiah and eventual divine discipline. And then that inevitably leads to his crucifixion. And so what we see here is the backdrop for the ascension and the session. Something happened, uh, was going to happen that was not foreseen in the Old Testament. Because the king was rejected, God is going to bring about a new plan, a new program, unforeseen, unpredicted, not revealed in the Old Testament. That's why it's called a mystery. And that there would be a a new age. And in that new age, there is a new entity called the church. It is the body of Christ, and it is specifically, I mean, its identity, its purposes, and its function are specifically tied to this period of time when Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and fulfilling his roles and responsibilities during that time. So what we've seen here is that as the backdrop to the ascension, Jesus ascends to heaven. He sits a position of passivity, sits at the right hand of the Father, a position of authority over all creation. But he is waiting. And this allows for this new unforeseen age of the church age, a period of incredible individual blessings for every believer. And a and a new role and identity for this church age. It's our family. It has a new position. We have a new identity. And that's what Ephesians is all about, is developing that. And we have to come to understand this in ways perhaps we've never understood it before because this should reshape the way in which we think about our spiritual life and our purpose and meaning in life today as believers in Christ. So we'll come back next time and begin to develop this even more. Father, we thank you for this time to study these things, to be reminded that our salvation is not just some personal thing that is great because we know we'll go to heaven, but that it fits into a much larger 
plan and purpose. And we've been given a new identity and position in a new family, unlike that that's occurred to any believers in all of human history. And that this becomes the backdrop, the framework, the foundation for understanding who we are and what we should be about in this church age. And it it goes beyond uh, the superficial ways in which we often are taught about the Christian life or we live the Christian life. And it should blow our minds. It should expand our understanding and it should transform how we think about what we do and how we live and how we think each and every day. Father, we pray that anyone listening today to this message would come to understand that they have the opportunity to have this new life in Christ, this new identity, this new position, this new privilege, that it's based not on what we as individuals do. It's not based on failures. It's not affected by failures. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. He paid that penalty. He died for us that by faith alone, simply believing in him, not anything else, because Christ did all the work. It is Christ's perfect righteousness that makes us righteous, not anything that we've done. And that by simply and only believing in him, we have everlasting life. And Father, we pray that you would make that clear to each one of us and the implications of it for our future life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.